I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure and a privilege to welcome um, here tonight photographer, art historian, Twitterer and novelist Teju Cole. <laughs> is it Twitter or is it Twitter? Teju tweeted yesterday, London, the Lagos of the British people. Um, <laughs> and perhaps he'll expand on, on what it means to be a Lagos. I'd, I'd really like to know. We're delighted also tonight to welcome writer and critic Max Liu, who will be leading the questions um, and looking after the evening for us. Please join me in welcoming Tejiko. Thank you. In the spring, life came back into the Earth's body. I went to a picnic in Central Park with friends, and we sat under magnolias that had already lost their white flowers. Nearby were the cherry trees, which, leaning across the wire fence behind us, were aflame with pink blossom. Nature is infinitely patient. One thing lives after another has given way. The magnolia's blooms die, just as the cherries come to life. The sun coming through the petals of the cherry blossoms dappled the damp grass, and new leaves in their thousands danced in the April breeze, so that at moments the trees at the far border of the lawn seemed insubstantial. I lay half in shadow, watching a black pigeon walk toward me. It stopped, then flew up and out of sight behind the trees, then came back again, walking awkwardly as pigeons do, perhaps seeking crumbs. And far above the bird in me was a sudden apparition of three circles, three white circles against the sky. In recent years, I have noticed how much the light affects my ability to be sociable. In winter, I retreat. In the long and sunny days following, in March, April, and May, I'm much more likely to seek out the company of others, more likely to feel myself alert to sights and sounds, to colors, patterns, moving bodies, smells other than the ones in my office or the apartment. The cold months make me feel dull, and spring feels like a gentle sharpening of the senses. In our little group in the park that day, we were four, reclining on a large striped blanket, eating pita bread and hummus, picking at green grapes. It was a warm day, but not so warm that the great lawn was packed. We were part of a crowd of city dwellers in a carefully orchestrated fantasy of country life. Moji had brought Anna Karenina with her, and she leaned on her elbow and read from the thick volume, only occasionally interrupting herself to participate in the conversation. 
and a few yards away was a young father calling out to his toddler, who was wondering, Anna, Anna. There had been a plane traveling at such a height above us that the grumble of its jets was barely audible over our discussion. Then only its faint contrail remained. And just as that faded, we saw the three white circles growing. The circles floated, appearing to fall upward at the same time that they were falling down. Then everything resolved like a camera viewfinder coming into focus and we saw the human shape within each circle. Each person, each of these flying men, steered his parachute to the left and to the right and watching them, I felt the blood race in my veins. Everyone on the lawn was by now alert. Ball games stopped, chatter became loud and many arms pointed upward. The toddler, Anna, astonished as we all were, held onto her father's leg. The parachutists were expert, floating towards each other until they were in a kind of shuttlecock formation, then drifting apart again and steering towards the center of the lawn. They came closer to earth, falling faster. I imagined the whoosh around their ears as they cut through the air, imagined the tight focus with which they were bracing themselves for landing. When they were at a height of some 500 feet, I saw that they were dressed in white jumpsuits with white straps. The silken parachutes were like the enormous white wings of alien butterflies. For a moment, all surrounding sound seemed to fall away. The spectacle of men fulfilling the ancient dream of flight unfolded in silence. I could almost imagine what it was like for them, surrounded by clear blue spaces, even though I've never skydived. Once, on a similarly fine day a quarter of a century ago, I had heard a boy's cries. We were in the water, more than a dozen of us, and he drifted away towards the deep end. He couldn't swim. We're in a large swimming pool on the campus of the University of Lagos. As a child, I had become a strong swimmer at my mother's insistence and somewhat to my father's dismay, since he was himself afraid of water. She had taken me to lessons at the country club from the time I was five or six, and a good swimmer herself, she had watched without fear as I had learned to be at home in the water. From her, I had learned that fearlessness. I haven't been in a pool in years, but once my ability had made a difference. It was a year before I went away to school. I had saved another's life. This boy, of whom I now remember nothing other than the fact that he was like me, of mixed race, in his case half Indian, was in mortal danger, drawn into increasingly deeper areas of the pool, the more he struggled to keep his head above water. The other children, shocked into inaction by his distress, had remained in the shallow end, watching. There was no lifeguard present, and none of the adults, assuming any of them was a swimmer, was close enough to the deep end of the pool to help. I don't remember deliberating or considering any danger to myself, only that I set off in his direction as fast as I could. The moment that has stayed in my mind is of having not yet reached the boy, but having already left the crowd of children behind. Between his cries and theirs, I swam hard. But caught in the blue expanse around me and above, I suddenly felt like I was no closer to him than I had been a few moments before, as though water intervened intentionally between where he was in the shadow of the diving structures and where I floated in the bright sunshine. I had stopped swimming, and the air cooled the water on my face. The boy flailed, briefly breaking the surface with frantic arms before he was pulled under again. 
The strong shadows made it difficult for me to see what was happening. I thought for an instant that I would always be swimming toward him, that I would never cross the remaining distance of 12 or 15 yards. But the moment was to pass, and I would become the hero of the day. There was laughter afterwards, and the half-Indian boy was teased. But it might easily have been a tragic afternoon, but I hauled the short distance to the diving platform might have been a small lifeless body. But almost all that day's detail was soon lost to me, and what remained most strongly was the sensation of being all alone in the water, that feeling of genuine isolation, as though I had been cast without preparation into some immense and not unpleasant blue chamber far from humanity. For the parachutists, the distance between heaven and earth began to vanish more quickly, and the ground suddenly rushed upward to meet them. Sound returned, and they landed, one after the other, neatly, in billowing clouds, to the whoops and whistles of the picnickers in the park. They slipped out from under their tents, crouching, and signaled to each other. Then they rose like victorious matadors, gesturing to the crowd, and were rewarded with our cries and louder applause. Then it stopped. Above the noise, we heard the blaze of sirens on the east side of the park. Four police officers came racing over the ropes around the perimeter of the lawn and ran towards its center, all as ungainly in their movement as the parachutists had been balletic. We began to boo safe in our numbers and were pushed back from the congratulatory circle we had formed so that they could arrest the daredevils. Someone at the far end of the circle shouted, Security theater! But the wind had picked up and it swallowed her voice. They did not resist arrest. No longer encumbered by their wings, they were led away by police. The crowd began to cheer again, and the parachutists, all young men, grinned and bowed. One of them, taller than the other two, had a full ginger beard that glinted in the sun. The parachutes remained in a glossy heap in the grass, and when the wind picked up again, seemed to give off trembling exhalations. And so we watched the parachutes breathe for a while, while the men were led away. Then, but only after what seemed like a long time out of ordinary time, we came out of the marvelous and resumed our picnic. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much for that wonderful reading, Teju. Listening to you read your work aloud, I started to hear new points of emphasis and articulation, which is similar to the experience of rereading your novel in preparation for this evening, hearing different echoes, new rhythms, and sensing gentler and quieter tensions than I'd previously noticed. To achieve these effects, you said last year that you had thought about the problems of writing for a long time. Mm. What were the problems of writing Open City? Elizabeth Costello by Kutsia, which is a book I like very much, which I cite in the book, is in, in Open City, begins in a sort of strange way. It says, you know, how do we get from, the very first sentence says something like, how do we get from um, here, where we are, which is the beginning, <laughs> to where we're going to get to. So in that sense, sort of very meta, you know, how do you get to that farther shore? And this is in the context of someone giving a lecture. So there's, there's an excuse for it. But I think everybody who sits down to write something 
has to think about this problem of um, we already have a command of language, but how do we create an inhabitable world, a, a world that lasts for uh, 300 pages or for 250 pages or however long it is, 700 pages? Because for me, that is what a long work of prose fiction is. It's, you're creating a world that you want to invite other people to come and inhabit. For me, the problem of Open City was the strange problem of uh, what is actually unsayable. So this is a book that essentially exists in the shadow of 9-11. I was in New York on that day, and I have been in New York ever since. So in addition to having experienced that cataclysmic event, I also experienced, along with my millions of fellow residents of that city, I experienced the aftermath of that event, including the impossibility of communicating what was going on inside us, inside each of us. Um, so that was actually the problem I set, about, set myself in the book. There had certainly been lots of responses to 9-11, but they had been sort of political. Many of them had been sort of brash. I mean... By far the worst was the decision to go to war in Iraq. That was a response to 9-11. And, uh, but that was a response that had nothing to do with the sense of trauma that we felt as people who lived in that city. And so that was a problem to attempt to solve in this book. I, I interviewed Teju for um, Free AM magazine last year. And um, you told me then that um, Open City was about the failure of mourning. Yeah. And... And that's, that's what you mean, mean by this um, failure to come to terms with the trauma. Yeah, because, you know, when that sort of thing happens in a country, I mean, not that sort of thing like two planes hitting two towers. That's never happened before. But when um, a cataclysmic event happens, there's always a political temptation to make, to take advantage of it, which uh, Bush and Cheney and their cronies absolutely did. Um, and then there's also sort of the nationalistic narrative and the metropolitan narrative of uh, sort of we're brave and we're moving on and we're we're a great nation and and all of that and all of that stuff happens so quickly and meanwhile you know for months afterwards and I think for years afterwards many of us unfortunately I mean, Londoners experience something similar with. Uh, What, what do you call it? Seven, seven, seven. seven, seven. Yeah. Um, where, you know, for quite a while afterwards, you're sort of the walking wounded emotionally because your sense of safety has been damaged. Um, and there's nothing in the political response that can actually answer to that. The answer to that kind of thing is, are those sort of private experiences. And through the character of Julius, the narrator of this book, I wanted to tell the story of one more or less ordinary New Yorker who's haunted not simply by 9-11, but by the fact that New York City is a space of repeated trauma and the repeated suppression of trauma. So this repeated trauma, um, I believe shortly afterwards in the, in the novel, the, the passage you read from, um, I think Julius says that anxiety was cloaking the city. Mm. And it's it's summer 2007 when yeah. he says that. That's right. Do you still get a sense of that anxiety when you're in New York today? 
I mean, yes, absolutely, uh, with New York because of security procedures and just because of the way that fairly innocuous things um, then become sites of worry. It's post-traumatic stress, right? So any loud sound is going to drive you crazy. A privately flown airplane with one or maybe two people in it crashed into a building a few years after and the first thing you think is, is it terrorism, you know? And maybe around 2005, this is something I opted to leave out of the book, but a sweet smell wafted o- over the entire city. Um, and it turned out to be um, a factory in uh, New Jersey that manufactured spices. And there was something just about the way the wind was blowing that day that cloaked the city in this unctuous, uh, sweet smell. But... We could not figure it out very easily. It took hours to figure out what it was. And immediately, we're jittery. We think about terrorism. So so that's the first answer. The anxiety is there, definitely, because of 9-11. It, it happens in smaller ways. Every time you see an airplane making its normal approach towards the airport, well, that's what airplanes do. They sort of vanish behind buildings. But, you know, you think to yourself, you know, and that goes on even 10 years after. But it's a kind of private experience we don't talk about much. But in addition to this, um, I also sort of felt that there are certain individuals who are hypersensitive to the pasts of places. So even without Al-Qaeda getting involved, New York City is already a site of trauma. And that's an ongoing thing. And that's just some people's lot in life to experience every space as in some way pre-traumatized. And Julius happens to be one of those people, and I happen to be one of those people. Like, London is a place where 200 years ago, it was already a big city, and there are people living out their lives, and all these people have vanished now. They're dead. And they're the people who built these buildings that we're in. Uh, We hardly think about them. So to experience... Each city as a place of vanished past is also, I think that just sort of comes down to your sensibility as a person. Well, I mean, at one point, Julius um, feels that he's steeped in the echo across centuries of slavery in New York. Could you tell me about the way that you use echoes and excavation in in this novel? Well, I think of myself uh, sort of as an unsystematic historian, in part because I have academic training as a systematic historian. <laughs> Not as much fun. So to go through unsystematic history is to find those things that come more out of the little bits you pick up here and there and to turn that into a story. And Julius is picking up echoes of what has happened because the official record has its own agenda. Okay, so New York is a place of perpetual new beginnings. And the response to 9-11, we build a new tower there, build it higher. That's the official answer. But there are real histories that get erased Mm -hmm. through that. One of the more more interesting facts uh, for me is that before the Twin Towers were built, that area was actually a dense network of little streets in the lower part of Manhattan um, that was just a busy area with lots, lots of radio shops and mm-hmm. electronics and all of that in the early part of the century. And in the 70s, everything is cleared out. 
you know, to make room for the Twin Towers. So already there's an erasure on the site. Before that, it was a site of a Middle Eastern market. I mean, so the ironies of history are really interesting. People who had come over from Lebanon and Syria, uh, many of them Christians, uh, but not all of them, uh, that was their space in Lower Manhattan, exactly where the World Trade Center is now. And before that, part of it had been, you know, you know, Native Americans and all. And some of the part of it is just land reclamation, landfill, did not even exist as land. But official history wants something to only mean one thing. And I, those, for those of us who are unsystematic historians, we know that each thing means several things. Each space has lots of competing layers of history. So archaeology becomes like the perfect metaphor for, um, for what's going on. At times, it feels like both, both in New York and in Brussels that there's a kind of cacophony of a competing um, agendas. And Julius tells us that he's distrustful of causes. Uh, Why is that? And do you share his distrust? Well, I think he's distrustful of causes uh, because he's, he's a difficult person. He's certainly alienated. Uh, Julius is half German and uh, a half Nigerian. Uh, he lost one parent quite young. He's estranged from the other. And he's a psychiatrist and he lives in New York. That's all you need to be alienated, you know. Right? <laughs> yeah, that will do your head in, you know. So that's that's him. He does not seem like the kind of person who's going to join up no. and say, you know, I'm part of this. Because when he's in Nigeria, people think he's white. Because, you know, that's more or less what happens when you're partly white in Nigeria. Um, and when once he's in the U.S., he's not partly white. He's black. The way Obama's black, you know, that becomes like a rigid identity. So he's sort of... Um, sort of wriggling out of these impositions. And one of the continuing themes of the book is that people keep trying to impose an identity on him. You're this thing. And he doesn't want to be. To what extent do I share his? Well, I mean, he was, it was a chance to explore somebody who's very far into not having causes. For me personally, I, I'm distrustful of causes, but I think we have an ethical responsibility to to take sides. Neutrality can be an abdication of responsibility. But I can understand why somebody might want to say a pox on all your houses, mm-hmm. you know. I was very struck actually when reading your article, I believe in the New Yorker about Thomas Tranströmer. Yeah. Um you said that you had I need to get this right. You, you had ceased to believe in God mm. during the Bush years. Yeah. What impact? <laughs> Only coincidentally, then. Yeah. That's what I was asking about. <laughs> I mean, yeah. what impact did that have on Open City? That loss ah, of that's, faith. Yeah, that's an interesting. Sorry. Um, I think it's fair to say that. One of the motifs running through the book is the helplessness of humanity. It's it's kind of a, a big thing, but you know the book takes on big themes and the, the the sort of the damage that we do to ourselves, to each other, and that history does to us. There seems really no end to it. I I used to be a pretty um, ardent Christian, 
and lost my faith just like that in London. <laughs> um, <laughs> not it's not, not your fault. <laughs> I'm not blaming you. Not blaming anyone. It was a good thing to happen to me. But because I no longer had a neat solution to existence, which essentially is what religion is, I felt like I could take on this subject with a kind of realism, which is that, you know, we really, history is awful and we do awful things to each other. And there are no, not only are there no uh, uh, sort of ultimate answers to our problems, but I, I became very interested in the question of implication. How implicated are we? And so it would have been, I don't know how much you know sort of about, about this novel. It's not very plot driven. It's kind of stream of consciousness. A lot of it is, all of it happens from Julius's point of view. He's the narrator of it. Um, um, and it strives for a certain kind of realism that takes something from, uh, from early modernism, uh, Joyce and, uh, Wolf in particular. Um, you know, but the question was, how do you, How do you portray life as we experience it in, in terms of things remain inconclusive, things go bad, and very often we are not innocent of them going bad. And so many other novels, I think, of this kind, if you think about novels that sort of delve into historical trauma and spaces, very often have a narrator who is our, a stand-in for us, the reader, a narrator who is more or less neutral, maybe pained in some way, but more or less like us. And I didn't want, I didn't want to be reassuring in that way. I wanted somebody who was thoughtful, intelligent, perceptive, but also troubled, damaged himself, not entirely trustworthy, not dramatically untrustworthy in a way that then becomes kind of, uh, but just not more or less trustworthy than any of us. And we all have our massive failings that never come up at dinner parties. <laughs> and I was interested in that kind of narrator. Um, somebody who was, I'm going on a little bit long, but what I mean is that we are sort of used to wounded characters, but then their woundedness then becomes um, an occasion just for sympathy from the reader. But my, my experience of people who are really wounded is that they become wounders, hmm. and I wanted to explore that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll get on to Judas's wounding of of the characters uh, in a while. You mentioned James Joyce and Virginia Woolf. One of the joys of Open City, I think, is the way that you write about other works of art, whether it be music, painting, photography, other novels. To what extent do you feel that Open City is in a dialogue with other works? Well, it certainly is to the extent that uh, I come to writing as a reader. And uh, actually, I mean something very precise by that. I, I don't simply mean that uh, in, in the general way that every writer is a reader. Uh, a lot of writers are trained as writers. I'm sort of self-trained as a reader, a close reader of, of books. So I think it's natural that my book will reflect, reflect the fact that, you know, I don't have a master's in f a fine art in writing. 
I just have, you know, a couple of decades of obsessive reading of, of, of certain books. Um, so that's one thing. And so, uh, there are echoes and there are friendly nods and winks at other people's books. There's a, a little passage of about, uh, one third of a page that is, is sort of a, a stone cold, uh, homage to something from Joyce. So it becomes a conversation with other readers. In other words, I am assuming that this is not the first book you've ever read. Um, <laughs> if it is, you'll be rather confused. But, uh, but if you've read other books, you might find this one interesting as well. But in addition to that, maybe because I don't have of the formal training of, of a novelist, uh, it's very common in the U.S. now to go to a master's program and learn how to write novels, and I didn't do that. I am a little bit like that geeky kid who shows up at the where all the cool kids are hanging out, hanging out and says, "Hey guys, what's up?" And then you know, and they say, "Oh God, not him!" You know. Right um, when Julius wants to talk about Calvino, that's um, right. You know, yeah, exactly. And the, the party, yeah, yeah. they're like, "No, no, we don't. Well, who's that?" And we talk about party stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit that way, in the sense of not keeping to the rules of what a proper, well-made novel should be. One of the unspoken rules of a proper well-made novel is that there's certain things we keep very vague. We don't talk about the movies that the characters went to see, and we don't talk about the books that they're reading. And we are participating in reading a novel basically as a cultural activity, is part of what we're doing. It's like going to a movie or going to a concert. When we pick up a certain kind of novel, when we say, you know, whatever it is, McKeown wrote a new book, I want to read it, uh, it's because we like reading novels, but it's also because we're participating in a cultural activity. It's part of our worldview. It's part of who we are. We read literary novels. But characters in novels are not like us in that way. They seem to be too busy getting on with the plot to read novels and to go to movies and to go to concerts. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, in my real life, I read novels and I go to movies and I go to concerts. And so do the people I know. And so it was important for me, for Julius to mention what he's reading, just as you probably could not spend an hour at dinner with me without the question of what we're reading coming up. So it was also a push for a certain kind of realism that I don't see very much of. There's that great moment uh, when he's in Brussels and he says, oh, the next day I just stayed in bed and read Camera Lucida. Yeah. And you think, yeah, well, that sounds like a good way to spend a day. Yeah. Um, I was reading <laughs> yeah. an essay by James Wood um, in the London Review of Books last year and it was about Austerlitz and he talked about a dialogue between Austerlitz and Camera Lucida. Mm. And I started to think about Camera mm. Lucida as this mid- middle point between uh, yeah. Austerlitz and Open City. Yeah. And I know that earlier this summer you visited uh, W.G. Sebald's grave. Yeah. How was that? <laughs> I've been looking <laughs> right. for another way of saying That's that right, for yeah. about a month. And oh, you know. One. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
graveyard visits. <laughs> graveyard visits, streamers and hats, you know. Okay, well, Party. another um, way to put it. I, I mean, <laughs> when I've visited artists' graves, especially if it's one who I know the, the life as well as the work, or I, yeah. or I think yeah. I know the life, yeah. I find it to be quite a visceral experience. Yeah. Was it visceral? It, it was very visceral. It was, it was very strange um, because in addition to being a writer I love very much, uh, Sebal died about 10 years ago, and he's somebody whose work I admire very deeply. He's also come to play a very strange and unexpected role in my life, which is that uh, his work has been mentioned in relation to mine. Uh, very many reviews of my work say something about Sebald, about how aspects of the book remind them of Sebald. And that's very weird for me because I'm very strongly influenced by many writers, including him, but not especially him, but for many critics, it has been sort of especially him. I mean, I'll give away sort of one of my secrets. There's a book called The Enigma of Arrival by uh, V.S. Naipaul, which is probably with the Dubliners, the biggest influence on this book. But somehow it's a sable that people keep going back to because he died and there's this sort of, you know, this, this whole discussion about him. So seeing him Passes by actually, going to his grave and um, experiencing it was, you know, like when you go to an artist that you love, is an intense experience. But then, the, then I wrote about it, and then there was this other public aspect of talking about an artist whose name comes up when critics are writing about my work. So it was strange. It was uncomfortable. It felt, um, it was very moving. It felt like. It was, it was a love letter. It was declaring publicly an affinity. It also felt like too much. It felt like th- those um, authors who thinly disguise their love affairs in novels. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, write right, about then. their ex-wives. Those guys. Um, um, so. you, you mentioned V.S. Naipaul there. Harry Kunzru has described you as belonging to a new generation of global writers who are at home in the world. And this idea about being at home in the world, it feels, in Julius's case, he has a confidence that the young men in Naipaul's fiction, uh, mm. say in A Bend in the River, and perhaps uh, if I think of uh, J.M. Kutzi's youth, yeah. th- they lack that confidence when yeah. they are abroad, out in the world. Why do you think that is? And, and what does it mean to you to be described as a global writer? It feels large. <laughs> and round. Yes. You know. Um, one of the strange things about the reception the book had in the US and maybe in other places was there was a bit of an element of surprise at the person of Julius. Like, oh, he's really cosmopolitan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And that surprise surprised me because uh, he's, he's, uh, he's an invention. It's a work of fiction. But his cosmopolitan reality is something that's not only very close to mine. If it was very close to mine and I was eccentric, well, that's one thing. But it's the reality of almost everyone who's my friend. Almost all my friends 
are young people who have one foot in the UK or in the Western world and another foot in some other reality, whether it's Africa or India or China or Latin America, and all of whom take themselves as existing absolutely in the present, but being plugged into many other realities. It's just the life we live. And when I have a party or I go to a party of my friends, our world is very much like Julius's world. Um, and I'm pretty sure that many people in this room sort of have that experience. And meanwhile, this, the way you see yourself dis- depicted in, in the media or on television or even in novels is as, well, there's such a thing as the real Americans. Uh, and then there are those people who are of color or who are, you know, ethnic in some way. You know, I don't, I don't wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, well, you're black, you know, you know, you just, you get on with your life. You read books and you have a job and you drink wine and you know what kinds of wine you like. And you actually have opinions about different jazz records or different, you know, rap artists or rock. And, and I think it's an interesting moment for the U S with all this because not only because of people like, Junot Diaz or Jhumpa Lahiri, who are enacting that on a sort of like national stage, or people like Zadie Smith, whose works uh, do very well over there, but also because of Obama, because the man at the center of American life is one of these hodgepodge characters who is fully American, but has lots of other stuff going on in there. It's become a very, very important uh, American form of identity that actually goes beyond the simple hyphenation. And it becomes, because, because I think what's important about these new kinds of Americans is the fact that they are completely American. I have a US passport. I could be, you know, president if I was taller. Um, but in addition to be fu- being fully American, you also really, really know something else. Deeply, in your blood, in your bones. I can handle myself anywhere in Nigeria. You know, Yoruba was my first language, and I speak it fluently. So that does a different thing in your head. And, uh, and now we're moving closer and closer to the center of American life. And I think also to British life. There are more people like that. And Europe is, of course, having to deal with that also. Outsiders who are actually not outsiders at all. When we corresponded last year, I, I asked you a really direct question about a moment near the end of the novel yeah. when Moji makes this accusation against Julius. Yeah. And I, I just couldn't help but say to you, is it true? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. No, it's in a novel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. To which you gave a very unambiguous answer. It would be good if you could repeat that answer. And also... I hate it when they do that. <laughs> Can you repeat that thing you said last year? You know, <laughs> you'll, you'll give me clues, right? You'll remind me of what I yeah, said. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I see. I change my answers during every interview. Really? Yeah, but I, to keep it interesting but for I've myself. Been telling everyone about that answer. Yeah, well, it's and, true too. You know, oh, <laughs> you know. well, that, that's what I thought. But you were so unambiguous yeah. about it. Um, okay, and mm-hmm. can you can, can you could you imagine Open City without this moment? No, I certainly could not. Um, 
So what he's alluding to, and we're not going to, you know, give too much away, but this is a, a book with a fairly even surface. Uh, your first question was about, you know, what were the problems to solve in writing Open City? And for me, it was a problem of how do you maintain uh, a line unbroken from page one to the end of the book? How do you maintain the tone? If this is a book that is dealing with aftermath, how do I, and that was the difficulty in writing the book. How do I keep uh, the language at a level of control where different things are happening, but there's this sort of unbroken line? And I'm going to be a classical music nerd for just a second. But people who really like Schubert songs, when they're comparing between them, it's no longer a matter of did they say the words correctly or did they hit the right notes? Uh, it becomes a question of the line. Can a singer maintain a kind of line through it? And some of you might know Andreas Schiff when he did his Beethoven series here in London and they had these marvelous podcasts about the Beethoven sonatas. Now that he's got all the right notes, he's always obsessed with how do you make it feel as if, even though it's being played on piano, it's actually a voice. There's a line going through, you know, um, a master of that is Kazuo Ishiguro in Remains mm-hmm. of the Day and in many of his other works. But there's a line that holds all the, all the way through this, you know. And for me, this revelation was kind of the challenge of how do I put something that ruffles that texture a little bit. Maybe you think of it as the part where the piano gets really stormy briefly um, and still have it feel like an organic part of what's happening in the book. But without it, going back to an earlier answer I had, I just have this sort of sympathetically wounded character. Um, And then that's, to me, that's a bit less interesting. But, you know, I wrote it in the understanding that it potentially could be the deal breaker for the kind of reader who would think, oh, but we were having such a nice time. You know? <laughs> you know? Um, but I, I think for me that that's what turns it into a book that possibly troubles you after you've finished, possibly. You wrote about Kazuo Shiguru, I believe, when you uh, were talking about your top ten novels of solitude for yeah. The Guardian. Yeah. Um, and you've talked about the importance of solitude. And I guess one reason why I was surprised to find that you were such a prolific Twitterer. Yeah. Um, and then I obviously paid a bit more attention to your Twitter. And I expect you have many followers here tonight who are just as intrigued by me uh, you know, about these short, uh, haunting narratives that yeah. you put up on a daily basis. I believe that's connected to the Small Fates project. Can yeah. you tell us a bit about that, please? Yeah, so, um, so very briefly, I decided uh, most of us use Twitter as a kind of a water cooler, um, a small talk. Uh, site sort of uh, goofy things i i decided to use it as a way of uh working on a project of very short narratives that are drawn from the newspapers i started by drawing narratives from uh nigerian newspapers because i'm writing a, my next book is a non-fiction narrative of lagos nigeria which is why i think uh, london is uh the lagos of the british people you have a very fine city here. It's, it's impressive. You should be proud. It's almost as exciting as Lagos. Um, 
So that's that's what I started doing. But then after a while, after doing that for actually for several months, I went back and I started doing them based on New York newspapers, but New York newspapers of a hundred years ago. And each tweet is a, a three-line story or two lines, but less than 140 characters. And it is basically a story of death or disaster or mayhem uh, told in a some, somewhat ironic way. Uh, those of you who know French newspaper, Fait Divers, it's not as common in, uh, in English language journalism, but some newspapers have a section that's like news of the weird, you know, you know, De- Dr. Henderson just inherited a million dollars, but unfortunately he accidentally drank carbolic acid last night. <laughs> this sort of thing, things that shouldn't be funny, uh, but because of the way fate deals with us, uh, they are a little bit odd. Um, and every day in the papers, there are these. So I, every day, so today's August 20th, uh, 30th. 30th, I go to the New York Tribune of August 30th, 1912. So I basically read the newspapers every day, just not today's newspapers. I know what's really going on a hundred years ago. Um, and I think, I think Wilson's going to win, you know? <laughs> the impression I have is that Colonel Roosevelt isn't going to make it. Um, though he's making a lot of noise. And I, so I, t- I take these little stories and I sort of shape them into almost like a poetic little ironic little thing. Um, and yeah, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of taken off and it interests me enough that I've done a few thousand of, of them by now, actually. It's, it's almost a way of presenting poetry to the public without, you know, being poetic because it's about death and disaster and mayhem or, you know, the husband comes back from a business trip and finds his wife in a compromising position and uh, then the lover kills him, <laughs> you know. I don't know why this violence should be so interesting, but having taken the very sober approach to it in Open City, a book without jokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> There's loads of jokes. Yeah, well... The bonsai yeah, tree. Yeah, that's, that's what, I mean, there are some <laughs> jokes. They're, ju- they're just very... Only people like us, I think, Max. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I call them small fates, and I really sort of show my my dark side. <laughs> so that's that's kind of fun, and it's always strange when people get to know me through that. I think at the moment, forty eight thousand people follow me on Twitter, and so quite a number of people get to know me just through those fates, and uh, then they read Open City and they think. <laughs> you know, which is just like one really, really drawn out small fate is the way I describe it. Really drawn out and not even that dramatic. So, oh, sorry. Um, I think now would be a good moment to throw things open to any members of the audience who have questions. Hi. Can, can you tell us more about either the relationship between Dubliners and Open City? Yeah. Or whether Dubliners is a kind of fait de ver kind of thing in your mind as well. Yeah. Uh, not the latter. Um, you know, the fait de ver actually is not so important in English literature, but very important in French literature. L'Ecclesio uh, is influenced by it. Barthes liked them. Madame Bovary was based on a small news fait de ver that Flaubert saw in a provincial paper of some young lady who did what she should not have. So not not so much with Dubliners, 
But Dubliners in two ways. One, uh, the, the passage I, I referred to, this is so not hidden at all. It is just a flat-out homage to the end of the dead occurs in the middle of this book, where it's exactly the same rhythm, exactly the same kind of uh, event happens. So that's one thing. That's one influence. But the other is that in choosing to write what is basically a stream of consciousness novel, I could have made the choice to go with an experimental use of the English language. And um, I'm a little bit attracted to that and to have it sort of be pyrotechnic and to have this very complicated kind of language uh, happening like Joyce did with Ulysses and that like others have done. But I thought it was truer to this material and maybe even truer to me to actually just go for a very sober, direct use of the English language, very unadorned, not quite as showily minimalist as Hemingway, but just something that was sort of clean and true. Um, and there are very many good examples of that. Uh, Naipaul is certainly one. Ishiguro is another. But for me, probably the best example of the use of the English language is Dubliners. It's absolutely insane that he wrote this book in his 20s. It's disgusting, actually. <laughs> you know, because his command of the internal music of English is shocking and pleasing and encouraging and a great comfort. So that was a book I read uh, many times. And um, I think my ear was developed by reading Early Joys. Um, I really enjoyed Open City. I loved it, in fact. But um, I was very, uh, I thought a lot about the end. And it felt to me on reflection like a sort of um, a detective novel in reverse almost, that the crime happens at the end, but you never, there's never any sense of resolution about it. And also the sense of distrust that you're suddenly, you have with the narrator because you learn to like this man throughout the book and then suddenly he is possibly a criminal. And um, I, it was bothering me what it reminded me of, and it actually made me think, it, especially in its unadorned fashion, of um, Agatha Christie, in a way, with the, the uh, murder of Roger Ackroyd, which is a book that lulls you into a sense of comfort with the narrator, and then you realise that he's the criminal. And I wondered if you had any sort of relationship to detective fiction at all. Um, quite disappointingly, I, I don't read uh, them very much anymore, I, I, I actually don't know why, because I know there are very many good ones. Um, I just never somehow get around to it. But I read almost all of Agatha Christie when I was 14, and all Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew. But there was a moment, there was an Agatha Christie moment in my high school class where we were just sort of like passing them around like, you know, drugs. Um, and just sort of, probably because we didn't have drugs. Um, and so we got very sort of close to that uh, stuff. So I wonder if there's, you know, something latent in there. But the, the conscious explanation is the relationship between uh, melodrama and uh, reality and realism. And I think there's this bad habit in uh, literary realist novels of thinking that uh, melodrama has no place whatsoever in reality. When, as we all know, the most awfully melodramatic things happen all the time. 
precisely to those people who don't want to have anything to do with melodrama. So you go through a whole lifetime of sort of being controlled and you don't want any nonsense. And the most, you know, a naked man comes up and hugs you on the street, you know, I, I hope not, but you know, but, but, but these things, you know, do happen. I mean, on a, on a most serious note, um, a couple of months ago, I had a friend who went down in a plane crash, but this only happens in novels. That doesn't happen in real life, but, but of course it does, you know, and I was talking to another friend who I'd known for a while, but I guess I just did not know her family background. And she said that her um, mother went out one day and never came back when she was seven. Vanished. And she says, well, what I, you know, there was like, there was that bus crash and she potentially could have been on, you know, but this kind of unsolved mystery kind of thing. And I think in probably in everybody's life, to a greater or lesser extent, there are these sort of glaring, inappropriately melodramatic moments. And I was interested in exploring what that might look like in a so-called realist novel and just giving myself that challenge. So I, I sort of like the way we're talking about this now, because now people are going to want to read to the end. <laughs> Push on through chapter 19. It's kind of boring. Push on through the joy somehow. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, um, would you say that your book says anything about multiculturalism or the politics of multiculturalism? Because that was the term that reverberated through my head the most when I was reading it. And um, I don't know, particularly as a British reader, multiculturalism is is a unfortunately a really mal- much maligned kind of debate here. I find at sure. least, and um, sure. I, it's interesting hearing you speak about modernism and from people like Wolf and yeah. and Joyce. Did it, did it, did it yeah. sort of like figure consciously in your head when you were writing it? Like, were you writing a multicultural novel? Because you speak about difference a lot and you speak about the value of difference and ways of life. Sure. The histories well, of cities, so on. Well, it really does, just in the sense that it's, it's a fact of the lives of the people in the book. Only after finishing the book did I realize what a Benetton ad it was. <laughs> only after finishing because to me this is really this is just reality what is weird and offensive is friends or seinfeld sex in the city these television shows that they have ostensibly set in new york where almost everyone is white where how it's it's not possible get in the subway in new york and it looks like the subway in london there's all sorts of people and actually in certain parts of new york me and my friends sometimes play spot the white person, you know. So I wanted to, I wanted to portray multiculturalism not as an agenda at all because I'm actually, I get a bit wary of books that do that. I want to present it as just a fact of life, not, you know, where of different colors and sexualities and ages. Please like us. But, but more, you know, actually, don't give a shit what you think, because we're here and we are going on with our lives. So it is, it, it's just a lot more with the, uh, the dailiness of people's lives. Um, maybe there's a little bit of an agenda, which was to portray Julius as somebody who sort of had to deal with people in one way or another constantly 
not not constantly, but often enough, sort of coming up to him and say, "Oh, you're black. That's interesting," you know. And him going, you know, um, and a lot of his cultural markers are are not what we think of as black, because that's a reality too. Is that why he says near the end that remaining in the city is the only real sense to him? Um, there's a there's a kind of a wariness of, of what might lie outside of the city. What kind of yeah? I mean, there's prejudice he might encounter yeah. there. Well, there's definitely a sense of of New York not really being in the United States. You know, it 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 does become this space of you know a safety and uh, being at home. But you know, even the United States outside of New York is is very diverse. I I just did not want to do any sort of special pleading of saying. I remember a delightful review um, I read that said, I'm sorry, I'm a young author, I read my reviews, um, that said, this book was horrible. It didn't tell you anything about what it's like to be a Nigerian immigrant in New York. <laughs> you know? I really wanted to learn more about African culture in New York. Well, no, that's African culture as Julius experiences it. You know, I really didn't want to do any special pleading at all because... I think we're reading for, you know, multiculturalism 2.0. I'm sure there are lots of people in this room who will testify to that, which is that you wake, wake up in the morning and get on with your life. You're not a category of human being. You're just a human being. So, Can I quickly read a sentence from... Yeah, please. Or not? Sure, go ahead. Okay. Uh, a good one, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Be the judge of that. Uh, it says... Uh, it is impossible and it is arrogant to think that the present reality of Western countries is the culminating point of human history. Mm. And um, my question is, how much would change if a civilization, say, would be it the present ruling civilization, knows, uh, is aware of this fact? How much would it change? Does it matter at all? Um, so this is a book that talks a lot uh, in certain parts, actually really, like in the Brussels section, really goes into politics. But more as a discussion, not as a, yeah. again, not of an agenda or anything. Uh, they're, they're people who are having a discussion and you'll find yourself agreeing with one side or the other. You know, I had to do a little bit of the impersonation to get into both. But that sentence you read is one of those few places where I'll say, well, yeah, I agree with Julius on that, you know. Um, it's arrogant, it's impossible to think that, was that Julius actually? That Farouk that said that. Oh, I agree with Farouk then. Uh, it's arrogant and impossible to think that, you know, the, the current situation of Western countries is the culminating point of history. And, you know, a little bit of a dig at uh, Mr. Fukuyama, end of history guy. Um, but it, it's something that is extremely consequential for what the world is right now, which is basically it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a grab, grab, grab world in crisis um, of we have to maintain our absurdly comfortable lifestyles. And we have, if we have to go out there and kill a few hundred thousand darkies, we will. That is the reality of the Bush years, you know. So if the United States did not think that way, it would make all the difference in the world. There is no way that we, I mean, the disgusting thing, we don't even have a body count. We don't know if it's a half a million people who died 
in Iraq because of us. We don't know if it's a million. People who are just as human as we are, who died because of American greed, and because they basically assume that the way they live right now is the only right answer, and it is necessary to defend this with um, extreme violence. So, sorry, that's my political side. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't actually want to absolve Mr. Obama, whom I like very much, but he's conducting a horrifying and illegal drone war in in Pakistan and Afghanistan, you know. Um, and he's killing lots and lots of people who have nothing to do with anything uh, simply because he has to look like a strong person in spite of the fact that he's leftist. Do you think... Prove he's a real American. Do you think that if uh, Barack Obama wins the election in a couple of months' time, that... But God, please, let him win, because (laughs) the alternative... I mean, are you kidding, you know? Do you think that 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 pressure to uh, justify himself as a so-called real American... Do you think he'd feel that less so in a second term? Is that what you'd be hoping for? We can only hope, you know, because I don't think he's been as much of a disappointment as some people think. I think he's done an amazing amount of good work. But I think by the fact of being the president of the United States, he's also had to be a really, really unpleasant and inhumane person. Um, and I, I feel sad about that, about the people who suffered because of things that he's ordered. And I feel sad for him because I actually think that unlike his damned predecessor, um, he is actually a man with a soul. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to talk to, sit down and have a chat with Barack Obama 20 years from now. I think he's a man with a soul. It only remains to me to say um, thank you very much for coming. Thank, thank you, And uh, I've thank loved you. talking to you. Absolutely. And uh, I hope here. that everyone here has enjoyed it. Thank you all very much for coming down. And uh, thanks again. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 